Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Talk About Theories. I'm your host, Gabrielle Jackson. This podcast is dedicated to everything that we discuss in Theories of Human Communication by Stephen Littlejohn, Karen Falls, and John Oetzel. So today we're going to jump back in it and we're going to discuss chapters five and six of the, of the book. So in chapter five, we discuss the medium. And in chapter six, we discuss beyond human communications. So let's dive into chapter five. So chapter five, with, when it starts off with the medium, is all about different channels and mediums that you use in, communi- in communication. So that could either be television, radio, social media, any way of us being able to gather our communication is a medium or a theory that we discuss in this chapter. Okay, so as always, I'm always going to pick out just a couple of different theories that I think not only resonated within myself, but I also feel like resonated within the chapter. So to kick things off with chapter five, I decided to talk about medium theory. So medium theory was created by Marshall McLuhan and Donald Ellis. And just a brief summary of it just means that the medium is the message. The nature of the medium shapes how it is used and how it affects people. So a couple of different things that I found that the theory discussed was time bending. And time bending is really, um, it really talks about how things are not, how things are unchanged. You know, it's going to last a long time. It's kind of hard to move. It has little effect on people because there's not much movement to it. So a couple of examples that they used was things that were made of clay, stone. And what really resonated to me is you think of early forms of communication, you know, different tablets that were created. You know, you think of like in biblical times, you think of the Ten Commandments were written on stone. Well, yes, it was written on stone in the Middle East, but to people who lived in the Western world, they're not going to really know, you know, what's going on unless it was used for oral communication, someone actually who was talking could actually explain to them what was going on. It's not like it was something that they could see or touch or read for themselves. They needed someone else to tell them about it, which brings us into space bending. And that's something that's more light. It's, it's easy to transmit. It's more adaptable for, you know, people in, in their environment which is basically all of that, you know, both bendings, it's is how adaptable is it to your environment? So I like to think of space bending more as being like social media or texting. It's something that, you know, I can basically not only type out and send to the next person, I can do it being here in Charlotte and I can communicate with my cousins who live all the way in New Jersey. I can talk to them at the speed of light. I can send them short phrases. I can send them emojis. I can send them anything I want to kind of just talk to them and relay that communication back and forth to each other. I think as technology and time progresses, those forms of communication will become more lighter because of how it travels through space and the, the speed of everything traveling within it as well. Okay, so our next theory that we're going to discuss is media and cultural production. And this theory was created by Pierre Bourdieu and David Hesmanhoff. The theory centers on the idea of charismatic ideology of the creation. So what does that really mean? 
really it's just the ideology behind the person or the institution that's creating the product. So within this, it has four constructs that we pay attention to. The habitus, the capital, the field, and the autonomy. So habitus is a person's schemes and dispositions for making sense of the world. The capital consists of the resources that people have to produce media. And fields is the various interrelated Fields are the various interrelated positions in a society that are determined by the distribution of the capital. And last but not least, autonomy is the degree of independence of a field from other fields. So within those fields, you're going to have key fields for the media, which are the mass media production and the restricted media production, which together with economics and political fields will create power will create relations of power that affect the type of products that are created so within it they had a figure that was on page 50 155 that really talked about the subfields of each key field so the subfield of mass production is a low autonomy is low sim symbolic capital high economic capital which when i think about an example of this can be productions of Marvel movies. So you think about Spider-Man and the Black Panther and all these movies that have really come out. And you think about how it's big budget movies, they're mainstream TV shows, but they really don't always have all the symbolic traits that you would see within the cartoons and the magazines and the comic strips that they used to have back in the day. It's not always the same depiction of it all. Switching gears, when you think of the subfield of restricted production, it's a high autonomy, it's high symbolic capital, it's low economic capital, which means they're more of independent records, movie producers, user-generated con content. So for me, I think of documentaries, I think of videos that I might have been seeing that's made on social media. Like you'll see different different short movies that are put together and are shown on Facebook or introductions that are shown on Instagram, those type of things you would really see within that field. Okay, so our next theory that we're going to discuss is media and cultural production. And this theory was created by Pierre Bourdieu and David Hesmanhall. The theory centers on the idea of charismatic ideology of the creation. So what does that really mean? Really, it's just the ideology behind the person or the institution that's creating the product. So within this, it has four constructs that we pay attention to. The habitus, the capital, the field, and the autonomy. So habitus is a person's schemes and dispositions for making sense of the world. The capital consists of the resources that people have to produce media. And fields is the various interrelated All right, so moving right along, we're going to switch gears from the media and productions. And we're going to move more into the content and effects of the medium, which there were two theories that really stuck out to me. And those two theories are... The cultivation theory and agenda setting theory. 
Okay, so our first theory that we're going to talk about is cultivation theory. And this theory was created by George Gerbner, Nancy Signorelli, and James Potter. Now, this theory discusses television use and how it cultivates or produces a common culture. And usually it only does this when you are a heavy user of television. So if you're not a person who really watches television, this won't affect you as much. And we see this in the study that Nancy Signorelli actually does. So she first started the theory and conducted a study by analyzing 2,000 children from 1967 to 1985. And what she did was she tried to figure out if there was a such thing as a mean world syndrome, which means that there is a belief that no one in this world can be trusted just by what they see on television, just due to all the high crimes that they might witness. And what she found was that people who heavily watch television picture the world as being more gloomy and more and mean compared to other people who didn't watch as much television. You know, these people probably include people who actually went outside and, you know, just didn't consume as much as what they saw on television. And throughout time, you kind of just saw where different people actually conducted the same theory, the same testing just to see. And you see that there was a decrease between 1972 and 1990, where all the numbers just kind of just dropped. It just started to decrease. I think that was probably because more people were going outside, less people were watching television as much. You know, you just want to kind of experience things for yourself. But we saw the numbers actually begin to rise back up between the years of the early 1990s to 2010. You see the numbers start to rise up again. And I think that's just because more... More things started coming on. There was more primetime TV, you know, things like CNN, those 24-hour news cycles started to become developed. And, you know, the world of television was really changing. So those ideas and what we see on television have really shifted from when we first conducted the study back in 1967 till now. I mean, I even think about the things that we see on TV. There's just so much that is out there now to witness and, you know, it really does shape, you know, even though there's not like a ton of crime and things that happen here right in Charlotte, you know, that doesn't mean that I don't see those things happen on television or I can't see what happens throughout the world, you know, and not think, wow, it's a really scary place over there, you know, in a third world country or it's a really scary place in urban settings or things like that. It can really shape and really and really turn what you think or your perspective on what you believe. You know, it's actually happening in this world. But I think one thing that the theory really tells you is that you do need to live beyond what you see and beyond the picture of what's being portrayed in front of you. Our next theory that we're going to discuss under the content and effects topic is going to be agenda setting theory. And this theory was created by Walter Lippmann, Maxwell McCombs, Donald Shaw, and David Weaver. And this theory really talks about the media shaping the public agenda. Media does not tell us what to think, but instead they tell us what we should be thinking about. And Littman says that this really can, creates a pseudo environment for people. It says that the public responds not only not to the actual events that happens around them in their environment, but 
they really more respond to the pictures that are put inside of their heads. So they believe, he believes that people are not equipped to dealing with so much subtlety or variety. You know, we, we can't have too many combinations of everything going on in our head. We're not, we're not able to deal with all that. So in a way, the media is really more looked upon as gatekeepers. They kind of tell us what we should be caring about, what should be the forerunner of our minds. And when I sat down and thought about it, it's kind of true what happens in the world. You know, for instance, we're always told us told that the biggest story of the night is always the first story that we're really told about. You know, when I watch TV or I think of things or I think of different stories, it's always the biggest story is always the most important story. So perfect example, let's say there was a bus accident, not saying that there was a bus accident anytime soon, but let's just hypothetically say there was a bus accident and 20 people were injured. That would be the biggest story because within that 20 people are being injured, 17 people unfortunately passed away. So that would be the biggest story in a lot of different news outlets because it was such a tragic story. So many people lost their lives, different things like that. And that story will be the most important story compared to someone that just, you know, crossed the street and got hit by a car. As terrible as it is, it does not strike as many people that that bus accident will strike more people in their hearts and in their minds than it would be that one person who got hit by a car. It's sad to think that way, but that's just what that pseudo environment really does to us. It it tells us, you know, what we should care about more, what's what's going on more. You know, I usually found that I which I never really realized, but so many people love animal stories we care more about animal stories I think about the giraffe who no one could tell when how long the giraffe was pregnant or when the giraffe was going to have a baby there was so much media craze behind that giraffe and when it was giving birth it was beating out regular stories of people being kidnapped or lost or a car accident or any of those things it was like the biggest story in the world was when was this giraffe going to give birth so Littman, I think, actually hit it on the head when he discusses this. I mean, all of the theorists in that group. But you really get a picture of, you know, how the media really shapes what we care about and what we don't care about. All right, so moving right along, our next topic that we're going to, to discuss is going to be motivations use and consumption and within those theories which we talked about different ones we talked about transportation spiral of silence social action media uses of uses and gratifications theory and media and channel use i really would like to focus on media and channel use theories but really focus on the channel complementary theory so that theory was created by moan dua bergen and I really hope I said that right. But I, th- I think I did. But <laughs> I really wanted to talk about him because this theory really talks about new media not replacing old media. You always think and you always hear the, t- the idea that, you know, radio was killed by television. I mean, 
yeah, radio was killed by television. Television is now dying out because of social media, which is simply not true. This theory actually says that rather than these new new media replacing the old media, in, in actuality, what it's doing is it's playing into the needs of those people who use it. So rather people use media channels in a complementary way to address their needs and their motivation. It really, this, this theory actually really explores the relationship between the various channels. So the perfect example was 9-11 that they used in the book. And they talked about how people who normally only spoke face to face, and that's the only form of communication they had, were reaching out to the people who they usually communicate with through telephones because they couldn't see those people in front of them. So they used a new form of media in order to talk or to let those people know that, hey, I'm okay, I'm fine, I made it out safely, you know, here's where you can find me, et cetera, et cetera. Same way as those people who just generally communicated with everyone through cell phones or telephones, they now use online sources like social media, MySpace, any of those things to let people know, hey, I can't talk to you right now, but I just wanna let you know that I'm okay, you don't have to worry about me, things like that. So in in a way, they're kind of just saying how it all depends on your need at that specific time will really explain what type of media source you're actually going to use. All right, so moving right along, we really talked about face-to-face communications within chapters four and chapter five. So now chapter six really talks about the limitations of that. What happens when you're not discussing or having communication between two people? What happens when you're talking to an inanimate object? So that brings us into our first theory that we discussed in chapter six, which is entitled Naturalizing Culture. And this theory was discovered by Donnell Colborough. And he talks about nature and cultural mutually shaping each other. So communication sets up binaries like nature culture, wilderness and civilization, animals and humans, as well as suggesting that reality is out there somehow separating us from the language that is used to talk about the world. So nature is an environment without culture. Culture is an environment without nature. But you need communication to say something to each other. You you need that you need that verbiage, that written, that oral language to bring everything together. If it's not there, then it's really you not speaking. You're, you're, not, you're not grasping what's going on around you. All right, so our next theory that we're going to discuss from chapter six is going to be the revenge of the crystal which I first looked at the title and I was like, I have no clue what this is about to be. But this is the second theory that comes from Jean Baudrillard. And this theory basically is a summary of his views of objects in the contemporary commodity age. And what he says is that there is no longer a direct connection between an object and its original use. Instead, the object is a part of a system of consumption and possession. 
So really, he's talking about objects are getting back at or retaliating against humans. They're taking the upper hand in the relationship. And I still had no clue what the theory was talking about until I got down to the example. And I'm like, really? It was like literally light bulb just flickering. So the example that they used in the book was the Pirates of the Caribbean movie which I had no idea, because that's how much I watch Disney movies, that the movie is actually based on a Disneyland ride. So there's no existence of the ride. I mean, there's no existence of the movie before the ride even comes or comes to the play. So really, the movie is based on a sign of another sign. So it's really just tons of symbolism within the movie everything is depicted off of this one disneyland ride so this is a way for the object which has no life form having the upper hand on a movie that brings life to all to all these characters to this story setting to this entire franchise and series that comes out of it I thought that was like the coolest thing ever. So I thought that that theory really, really kind of just resonated and just really shows you how there are tons of relationships that can be created from objects to humans. All right, so our next theory that we're going to discuss in chapter six, which actually comes from communications between humans and technology is media dependency theory and I decided to pick media dependency theory because it kind of goes along with our chapter five and how we discuss so many things about media and channels and things of that nature so this theory was created by Sandra Ball Rokich and Melvin DeFleur and they talked about audience depending on media to varying degrees to meet certain needs and to achieve certain goals. So the more dependent a person is on a particular media source for having their needs fulfilled, the more important that medium will be to him or her, which is basically true. It's kind of like all the other theories that we talked about in chapter five. You find a specific niche and you kind of stick with it. So the example that they gave in the book was sports. So a person who loves sports, needs sports, loves everything generated towards sports is typically going to take a newspaper and go straight to the sports section. They appreciate all the other topics that comes within that newspaper, but honestly, they are here for sports. Once they get their fix in sports, they'll decide if they want to look at what's happening nationally, locally, what's an ad section, things like that. Same thing with television. A person who loves sports is typically going to watch ESPN all day, every day, until their needs of consumption is filled. Then they'll watch other different channels just to see, you know, what's going on. That's basically true. I do the same thing. When I'm when NBA is the NBA season is going on, I am glued into nothing but sports. I'm there for their morning show. I might get a afternoon fix while I'm at work. And then when I come home and I'm trying to unwind, I turn on a game or I turn on a summary of what happened and I get my play-by-plays and then I'm going to sleep and then I'm good to go for the rest of the night. Until I wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh, what did I miss? Who's talking about what? What does Stephen A have to say? So 
yeah, that's exactly why I pick media dependency, uh, depending on, I'm dependent on certain media platforms. All right, so our final theory that we're going to discuss from chapter six comes from the topic of communication between humans and the divine. And you typically don't think about this relationship and interaction as much, but things like prayer can actually be seen as a form of communication. It, it really is a form of communication. You're not really talking to someone, but you're talking to a higher being. So the theory that I want to focus on, which I found to resonate more along with me, is going to be prayer as a rhetoric. So this theory was created by William Fitzgerald, and he talks about prayer um, being a particular form of communication intended to bring a state of affairs into being through petition, praise, thanksgiving, or confession. It's a response to a crisis and simultaneously an opportunity to creatively act to address that specific situation. So for me, I like to pray just to, you know, thank God for all the blessings that he bestows upon me, my life, my friends, my family, and just all of my surroundings. You know, I think I'm truly blessed for being able to not only have a full-time job, but be able to go back to school full-time, you know, and I pray every single day because this is a great opportunity, but I also pray when all the stress of it all comes back upon me. You know, I'm only one person and, you know, this gets tough. I mean, I, I'm not the greatest person with time management and that's always been my struggle with a lot of times just through a lot of different things. So the idea of being able to praise him and thank him for giving me all these things, but to also praise him and pray to help get through all of these things, I think was a great way of me thinking about this theory. So it, it speaks from and to the conditions that gives rise to the utterance, defining the situation at the same time it addresses that situation. So just like everything I was saying, you know, as great as things can be, things can also be terrible and seem stormy and you just don't know how you're going to get through it. So a lot of people use meditations, they use mantras, they use prayer, they use, you know, anything really just to kind of get them through to speak to that higher being that they want to talk to, to help them overcome whatever is going on with them financially, you know, emotionally, physically, mentally, you know, it helps them get over that hump and to be able to stay focused and stay towards that goal. All right, that was chapter five and chapter six of Theories of Human Communications. I hope you enjoyed this week and my little rundown of theories that I gave you guys. So like I said, if you guys want to communicate with me, talk to me, you know, share with me what theories you enjoyed about within chapters five and chapter six, go ahead and click on the tab right at the top where it says chapters and let's talk about it. Write me a little message. You can even send me a little message. You can record a message if you want to, you know, let's share Let's talk about these things and I'll see you guys next time. Okay, so before we get started and we actually talk about 
my thoughts on the entire theory. I just want to give you guys a little bit of background information about our scholar who created the theory and her reasonings behind it. So to get started, our scholar that we're going to talk about today is named Angela Theraway. And Miss Theraway is considered to be a feminist organization communication scholar who believes organizations are gendered sites. And the way that she figures out or actually studies the feminist resistance theory is she evaluates her cases by speaking to women about their experiences rather than observing them in their own environment. And she does this because she wants to understand how women perceive their professional bodies or meaning their male peers and the strategies that they use to manage these people. So for instance, she created this term which she calls the tendency to overflow which means women's bodies might display meanings or messages that have to do with femininity and this could either be expressing emotion sexuality pregnancy or menstruation and she believes that women that if women express these type of messages or meanings that they can easily expose their gender differences between them and their male counterparts and in some cases it might not affect anything that's going on, you know, not saying that, you know, everyone is a male chauvinist and, you know, they're using these differences to kind of raise the stakes or, or separate each, each gender. But in some cases, there are times where a woman's credibility can be destroyed just because she is a female. So in one of her case studies, um, Trayway actually spoke with So according to the book, Tuthery actually conducted one study where she spoke with single parents who were opposed to using social services like welfare. And during her study, while she sat down with her clients, she talked to them about their different resistances on why they didn't want to use the organization and the resources that they had at hand. And throughout the entire interview, she found out that by resisting these different aids that these people were going to receive, it made the women feel empowered about themselves and they were able to envision alternatives to the, con to the conditions that they were living amongst in everyday lives. And I think that was really big because it showed women that they don't have to rely on anyone else to really go and move ahead in their lives. They can actually do it. They can push through. They can really build themselves up to understand that they don't need anything. They can really build their independence off of it. Tuthery also points out that the flaws in the organization of welfare offices and different things actually really cr can cripple women who use it instead of actually building them up. So although the organization's goal is to empower these clients or women or anyone that's using them, what they're actually doing is they're actually already selecting people who they believe demonstrate some type of self-sufficiency. And by doing that, they accept them. And then in turn, in return, they actually break those people down to make them feel as if they need to be dependent on these organizations in order to 
actually thrive and move throughout the program successfully, which is really not true. They honestly don't need that. If anything, these organizations really need to point out and pick out the women that, you know, aren't self-sufficient, that can't get get out there and find a job and, you know, bring in the money that they really need. They need to pick you know, they need to pick those type of individuals to help out. Instead, they pick these people who already have some type of money coming in. They already have some type of motivation skills or motivation inside of them that makes them go-getters that will, you know, really make them pick themselves up that, you know, do not allow them to rely on anyone else. Those are the people that they're going after because they understand that, you know, they need to break those people down in order to get them to become dependent. And, that's I think that's what really gravitated me towards this theory because there is a sense of there are there is a sense of resistance where people are saying to themselves you know I'm not that bad off I don't you know I I don't think of myself as being lower than anyone else so why is it that I have to conform and basically put myself out there as being lower than anyone else I really think that this theory stood out a lot for me just because of how I was raised. So for many who don't know, I am a product of a single parent household. So when I saw Theraway actually talking about speaking with single parents, it kind of just took me back to how I was raised. And I can tell you that from the time that I was younger until the time I became of age where I went off to college, my mother never relied on any source of welfare or any social services to actually help us live. And she'll always say to me, I'm never that hard off or we're never that broke where we need government assistance to help us live. I make enough money that we can live by our means and live under our means and be able to do all the things that we want to do. And if we can't do them, then we just can't do them. We'll find a way to get it done, you know? And for me, I think that was beyond amazing. That was a great teaching point for me because it just showed me that, you know, whether you have, you know, a billion dollars in your pocket, you don't need all that money in in order to survive. And I think that was like a great learning lesson for me growing up. But even when she was, even when I was younger, you know, I remember, my mom working two to three jobs just to make sure that I was able to get the life that I deserve. So I never went to public school. I, you know, I got everything I ever wanted for Christmas. I got all the things that I asked for on my birthday, or if I needed new clothes for school, I got those. If I needed new shoes for school, I got those. And I think that was really something that spoke true to her character. You know, she didn't allow the fact that she was a single parent or even a woman to allow that to tell her that, you know, she couldn't really take care of me. You know, it's always ideal to have the father and the mother in the picture. But when those things don't work out, she was able to be both my father and my mother. And I think that a lot of people, you know, even though they have that, you know, some people don't always experience the same thing. So I think I'm very fortunate to say that I could experience where my mother was my mother and my father. But she never, you know, 
she never made it seem to me like, you know, my father, you know, couldn't be there or, or wasn't good enough or, you know, any of those things like that. She always made me appreciate my father, but she also taught me to understand that, you know, it's just me and her and it's always going to be me and her. And, you know, we are, we're all we have. So by being that we're all we have, we have to take care of each other. Another point that Theraway made, which I absolutely agree with, is the idea of the tendency to overflow. So a lot of times when you look at businesses and you look at different corporations and you see, you know, you see the whole idea that, you know, women don't make as much as men. So it take it it takes it back to that feminist movement where, you know, society always deems the woman to be lesser than a man just because she has these messages or meanings that you know, really expose the gender difference between both counterparts. And, you know, in my thought, and just from working in my actual career now, you can kind of see that at times, but I'm not saying, you know, my job is one of those people who actually do that. I'm not saying that at all. If anything, the president of my company is actually a woman. So I think that, you know, that kind of shows how the world is changing, especially in media. But to say the least there are companies out here who do appreciate the male employee over the woman employee and those two people could be doing the same job but because of how society deems them that male employee may make more money than the female employee now I'm not trying to say that you know maybe he you know I'm not trying to say that you know maybe he might do more she might do less but If you look at the numbers and the price wage, the pay wage between men and women in society, men do make more money than women. So is it because that, you know, we have menstruations, we have pregnancy? Is it that we have emotions? I'm not sure. I'm not sure why there is a difference in pay. But I do believe that everyone should be paid equal. I know from my own experience, when I go to work, I give it 110%. I am always pushing myself to the limit, making sure that I am doing above and beyond to make sure that my job is done, that my work, that you can look at my work and that you can't see any gender. All you see is great work set in front of you. And I think that is what Theraway is trying to get at. She wants people who are going to be involved in this theory who understand this theory to know that no matter what happens these women that she speaks to are going to understand that no gender is going to stop them or get in the way of them getting what they want they're not going to use any assistance to get there they're going to use their mind and they're going to use their talent and their skill sets that they that they bestow and they're going to do that and able to get what they want and to become successful. And I think those qualities right there really stood out and really show how self-sufficient women can be in this world without people looking at their gender. All right, so that was feminist resistance. And like I said, it was just something that made me think about my childhood, my past, and really resonated with me in a way that I really didn't think was going to happen, but I'm I'm kind of glad it did. It kind of just, you know, boosted my whole Beyonce, 
Who Runs the World, Girls. I know you all know this song. But it really, really kind of really woke that type of feeling inside of me for me to understand that, you know, we have to teach these type of theories and these morals to our younger generations just for them to understand. And I'm pretty sure that they get it already just by looking at this world. But we need everyone to understand that we are all equal. You know, there is nothing that a boy can do that a girl can't. And there's nothing that a girl can do that a boy can't. Like, we all can do the same things. I mean, the world has shown us that already if we look at different news stories and articles and magazines and science. And, you know, there's nothing in this world that one person can do better than the other. So, with all that being said... I'll see you guys next week. Remember, this is Talk About Theories. If you want to comment or talk a little bit more about this theory or any of the other theories that you might have heard on my podcast, please go ahead and check my website out at www.jacksongr32.wixsite.com and we can discuss it there. Until next time, guys, have a good day.